or to others. Hi, my name is Ken Williams. I'm a certified life coach, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the host of Untoxic Positivity, a podcast where we learn to be less toxic and more positive. So get curious, stay positive, and come join the conversation. Welcome back to episode two of my brand new podcast, Untoxic Positivity. The name came from uh, actually my other podcast, which is called Chocolate Cake Bites. And there was a conversation that my daughter, Allison, had with her friend, Katie, about how sometimes being happy, being positive in our lives can be toxic. The term toxic positivity uh, was the topic of one of the, the podcast episodes. And it was just really interesting to me to consider that so many times in our lives, it seems that we are supposed to be happy. We should be making the most of our situation. We should look at the bright side, have a positive outlook, and that's kind of the ideal. And as I explored this conversation with, I think it was with Allison, on this other podcast about the the idea of toxic positivity, it uh, really meshed well with what I have been learning in my coaching practice. Life is 50-50, and there are uh, a lot of uh, influences, maybe, um, I'm not sure what else to call it, but a lot of influences that seem to to push uh, being positive, I- even in the, in the face of uh, difficult cir- circumstances. And I don't know that that's necessarily wrong, but I think when it comes down to ignoring or buffering, pushing down, um, numbing the feelings that we have, it can become toxic. It can be uh, problematic. So uh, in episode two, I wanted to share a little bit more about my story. Why coaching? Why now? And why me? Um, I'm (laughs) an old guy, uh, much older than than many people that uh, I have interacted with, especially as I've gotten to know some of the, the coaching community, people that were certified by the same the same school that I was, the life coach school, a lot of those coaches are younger, and I risk feeling like I have missed out or like I uh, am late to the party, and I don't think that's the case. I think that uh, we all have something that we can bring to our circumstance, to our life, to our uh, the, the gift that we can be to other people. So uh, as I have uh, learned a little bit about how my brain works, Uh, which also is probably the same way that your brain works, because we're human. (laughs) We're human people. Uh, And we all have human brains, and our brains work in a very similar manner. Our brains are designed to protect us, to keep us safe from harm. And sometimes that safety from harm gets uh, confused a little bit, and it's really safe from discomfort. So a little bit about me. Um, I was actually listening to a podcast the other day that that threw out a uh, an idea that I'd not considered quite this way, and it was the idea that we are operating our lives largely based on ideas that we received, things that were said uh, explicitly or not implicitly, things that we observed uh, from early childhood from ages zero to seven, eight. And those are things that just became imprinted in, on our minds. And we've never challenged those thoughts. So an example might be that we're supposed to be humble. 
we're supposed to not talk about our strengths. We're supposed to be, um, we're not supposed to talk about um, how much money we make. This is one of the things that I remember hearing, uh, again, not necessarily uh, an explicit lesson, but you don't talk about politics. You don't talk about religion. You don't talk about money. You don't ask your parents how much money they make. You don't um, discuss religion in the workplace. And there are some human resources applications for that, absolutely. But a lot of those ideas that that I think all of us universally gained, and the ideas are all different, but the ideas that we got from an early age many times are affecting and driving our lives in uh, ways that are not beneficial to us. So um, I'm just, I'm just going to share a few stories and give you a couple of examples of, of how that plays out. And the, one of the stories is about how um, I, I consider myself a recovering perfectionist. I like being good at things, which means, <laughs> I guess conversely, I don't like being bad at things. I don't like looking foolish. I don't like looking like I don't know what I'm doing, which means my natural tendency is to not try new things. If there's something that is going to put me in the spotlight, for example, if there's a project at work that is going to get me some some uh, awareness with the higher-ups, it is against my natural tendency to step into those roles because I want to make sure that it looks good. And especially if I don't know exactly how things are going to play out, it is really easy for me to um, just not raise my hand, not step forward. And uh, so this perfectionistic uh, tendency that I have uh, absolutely has held me back. I see people who have uh, taken risks and I, when I look at them, I think that they're bold and that they're that I'm encouraged or the, uh, by the things that they do. I think it's fantastic. Um, I'm just not ready to do that myself. And so it, it's held me back. There's a podcast I was listening to uh, last year where the uh, the speaker was saying that he had felt like he was in the passenger seat of his car. And I, I really resonated with that, or that resonated with me, that I f- that has been how I felt, that I have been a passenger in my life, and, and I'm not the one who's at the controls. I'm just letting things happen. If there's an opportunity, if someone comes up and says, hey, Ken, you should um, promote. <laughs> if I know that I'm, I'm going to uh, be successful, then it's an easy decision for me. But trying new things, trying uh, new industries, trying new jobs has not been something that's been terribly comfortable for me. Um, one other thing that, that I noticed, and I'm just, just going to share this because um, <laughs> maybe it'll let you know that I'm, I'm human as well. I, um, uh, not a lot of years ago, this is probably, this is less than 10 years ago, so I was still pretty significantly aged <laughs> in my life. Um, I was really insecure about my hair. And I've got friends, family that have um, thinning hair and they have, uh, but others have perfect hair. They just, uh, their hair goes where uh, they want it to go and it's, it's wonderful. My hair has always stuck straight up. And my mom and I were talking a couple weeks ago when I was out visiting about how even as an infant, my hair stuck straight up. There was nothing she could do. And I remember in junior high and high school, I would get a hairnet 
and I would um, comb my hair the way that I wanted. I'd put this hairnet on. I would dry my hair so that it would lay the way that I wanted, and it would lay flat against my head. I had a cousin, still do, <laughs> I had a cousin, and here his hair was just amazing. It just went exactly where he wanted it to. He combed it, had a nice sharp part. My hair, um, <laughs> back in the uh, 1980s, there was a toy called a manchichi, and it just looked like a, kind of a, a velour-type um, uh, hair. <laughs> it just it just looked like it was sticking straight up, but people kind of joked that my hair looked like a manchichi. And it uh, was really um, bothersome for me. So I actually worked with my sister, who does it, Annette. <laughs> she does an amazing job cutting hair. And um, she taught me the things that I could do and say so that I could get my hair to, to look like. It didn't look like I wanted. It looked like I meant it to stand up. Uh, I kept it really short on the sides and the back. I kept it uh, a little bit uh, a little bit short on the top so that it would still kind of give that uh, that spiky look. Um, I would use some gel. I really don't style it at all, uh, aside from a little bit of gel and comb it, brush it so that it looks like it is kind of laying the way that I intended. But for years, for decades, um, I just was really insecure about it. And as little as uh, not that many years ago, probably, like I said, about 10 years ago or less, um, People at work would comment on it. They would, and it would be things innocuous things like, uh, "Your hair looks great today," and I took it as not as an insult, but I took it as teasing. I thought they were joking with me that it was so bad that they had to tease me about it, and it was um, that was just my life. That's the way that I saw everything. People could compliment, and it's not just my hair. There were other things, are other things in my life that people could compliment me on, and I, because of the belief system that I had. Everything that I heard was taken as a as teasing. Um, I didn't take it as an insult. I I didn't. I felt like I was able to protect my my feelings a little bit that way. But I thought it was teasing. I thought people were making fun. I thought people were joking. And um, looking back, it is really interesting to me that this happens not just with my hair, not just with. Um, little, um, maybe insignificant things, but it happens all, all the time. It can happen about my thoughts about money, that uh, I have thoughts about money, or I may have thoughts about money, or you may have thoughts about money. Um, I've shared in uh, my other podcast that my, my thoughts about goals, and that goals are hard, and I hate them. And, and one of the things that I have explored as I've been um, getting involved in, in coaching a little bit more is that maybe these thoughts are wrong. What if I'm just wrong, just like I was wrong about my hair? I, I finally discovered it when I, somebody that I trusted, that I respected deeply, um, said something to somebody else, and I happened to, to learn about it. I don't remember if I overheard it or if I was told, but uh, he, he had hair envy, and I could not imagine why anybody would want this mess that I have on the top of my head, aside from the fact that it's there, and some people are uh, thinning or balding. And so I can understand that, that, you know, some, um, <laughs> some mess of hair is better than uh, a thinning mess. But that's where, that's what I was um, thinking. That's what was going through my head. And when I finally looked at that one belief and I considered I might be wrong, it, that blew my mind. I had no idea because... One of the things that I found out about our, belief, our beliefs is that they, because they come from our head, they feel so true. They feel so right. 
And this idea that I mentioned earlier about how these thoughts or these beliefs that we have have been unchallenged for so many years, that really has been interesting to me. What other beliefs do I have that are not right or that are not true? And that's a really interesting exploration. And so the question that I'm going to ask, this is a question that I'm asking me, but I'm going to ask you as well to consider what thoughts do you have that are not serving you well, that are not uh, necessarily true, that are holding you back? Uh, It could be something about a relationship. Um, I have, um, I've seen in my, in my own life that there are people that I feel like I deeply connect with and they don't reciprocate and vice versa. There are people who feel a deep connection with me and I just don't feel it. And so, um, things like that, a relationship, a, um, an ideology, some of these things, if we, if we haven't explored them, then where's that, where are those beliefs taking us? There's a model that I will, uh, I'll talk about. There are actually a couple of models that I've, um, that I've been learning about that I'll talk about. But, um, one of the models, this came from Hiram Smith and he's the Franklin, part of Franklin Covey, uh, back in the eighties and nineties, the, their planners were fantastic. I used them and they had some great information, but Hiram Smith has this model where he talks about a belief window and the belief window is how you see things. If your belief is that your hair is bad, then how it looks to you is it looks bad. It doesn't matter how it looks to everybody else. And really, it doesn't even matter what other people say, because that belief is just kind of ignored. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't fit through the filter. And so like I did, I assumed that people were teasing me. I assumed that people were, were poking fun. And how could they look at this and say that it looked uh, anything but like a mess. And there are things in our lives that, and, I, and I'm going to say this universally, there are things in our lives that are, uh, we have incorrect beliefs. We have beliefs that do not serve us well. They have, we have beliefs that are holding us back. Um, I'm going to talk uh, briefly about an experience that I had and how, uh, how beliefs held me back. And then um, I think I'll wrap it up for this time, this time around. Um, about 10 years ago, no, it's probably right around 10 years ago, a little bit less maybe, I was uh, on a uh, self-improvement kick, and it <laughs> I think I was listening to Tony Robbins or something like that, and drove by an airport that's just across the, uh, the field from my house. And there was a sign that was a big vinyl sign on the, on the chain link fence outside the airport perimeter that said, learn to fly here. And it just hit me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I had no idea what that entailed. I just knew that um, <laughs> it was convenient. It was uh, close. It was something that I could probably do. So I walked over with uh, uh, my daughter. We were walking our dog, and I walked in and, and asked, so what does it take to learn to fly? And there were these, this is back in the, the days before uh, online scheduling. They had these two big ledger books. One of them was for pilot instructors, and it had their schedules, and the other one was for aircraft, and it had the schedules of the aircraft. They said, well, sign up here for an instructor, and they pointed me to Jim, who was uh, a good starting instructor, and then uh, sign up for an aircraft. And then you show up at that time, and uh, Jim will get you started. So I showed up, and 
Jim met me in the lobby of this uh, this little airport, and he said, so what are we doing today? I said, I want to learn to fly. Now, this was terrifying to me <laughs> because I had never uh, considered that this would even be a possibility, that uh, I might be able to get in a plane and actually uh, fly it myself. So over the course of several months, I was uh, able to learn some things, read some things in books, listen to some tapes, some audio cassette tapes, which that's so long ago, and uh, had some ground school instruction with Jim, had some practical instruction in the air. And um, it was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. And I remember learning to, and I'll just tell you, flying is easy. Flying it's easy if you if you are in a plane and you're up in the air and you want to turn left, you take the control yoke and you turn it left. And if you want to go right, you turn it right. If you want the, the way they pilot pilots a lot of times will say, it, if you want the houses to get bigger, then you push forward. If you want the houses to get smaller, you pull back. That part is so easy and anybody can do it. The part that's challenging, the part that's difficult, the part that's dangerous is taking off and landing. That's where a lot of the accidents uh, occur. And Taking off, I was able to get that uh, figured out relatively easily. There's some things that happen with a little Cessna single-engine plane that you've got to uh, take into account. You've got to compensate for winds and the, the torque of the engine, things like that. And so um, taking off, not all that difficult, but landing, man, I struggled with that. I figure I probably did 100 landing attempts that were not good. And um, <laughs> we went over to another airport just so that I could practice. And, um, the thing that was interesting to me was at one point, this is, I was just not getting it. I was, I was coming down too hard or I was coming down, uh, and flaring, which is, uh, you're supposed to flare just a couple of feet off the ground so that as you lose airspeed, you just kind of gently settle onto the runway. And I was flaring too high, which meant I would have dropped <laughs> 10 feet or so. It was just not working for me. And uh, if you've ever learned to drive stick shift, it's uh, it's similar to that, that you may think that you're uh, coordinated, that you can that you can move your feet onto the clutch and that you can move the hit the gas or left let off let off the gas as you uh, adjust your gears. But that muscle combination can be a challenge. And th that was absolutely true for me as I was learning to, to land. There were so many things that I had to take into account. I needed to make sure that I was centered on the runway. I had to make sure that I was, that I was coming down at a, the right, uh, the right uh, descent rate and that I was flaring at the right point and that I was um, keeping my, the nose of the plane straight on the runway and that I was not um, uh, fishtailing or, and, and it, all these things, all these new, new controls. And it was, it was such a challenge, and I finally got it. I finally got it. And what finally got it for me was Jim asked me, what are you looking at? What are you looking at as you're landing? And I said, I'm looking at the nose of the plane, because <laughs> if I look right over the nose, I can see how high I am from the, the runway, and I want to make sure that I'm not too high, not too low. I'm looking at the nose of the plane. He said, oh, Ken, no. You can't look at the nose of the plane. You have to look at the end of the runway. Get a snapshot in your mind of what that looks like. Look at what the end of the runway looks like. That image, as you come down at the right descent rate, at the right angle, uh, centered on the runway, that's what you need to be looking at. And uh, so now my new coaching brain, 
as I interact with uh, myself and with others as I, as I have an opportunity to help them um, challenge some of their beliefs and some of the, the things that have been holding them back. I think about that, and that is really powerful, that many times uh, in my life, in my perfectionist tendencies, I've been looking at the nose. I've been trying to, to manage what that looks like, the immediate. What does it look like for my immediate uh, situation? A- am I going to be observed as somebody who is uh, competent or not? And, and if I have considered myself to be not competent in something, I've withdrawn. I've just not participated. But I'm, I'm realizing that if I decide to look down at the end of the runway, if I look, look at my ultimate objective, if I look at what I'm trying to accomplish, get a picture of that, then <laughs> I had no idea how powerful this could be. I can make adjustments and I can hit that target. That's why coaching, that's why me, and that's why now. I have been in the passenger seat of my life for so many years and I know, as I look at what I think my talents and gifts are, as I look at what some of my contemporaries have accomplished, um, I know that, I've, that I have untapped potential. It's time for me to tap it. And if you're interested in tapping your potential, I would love to have a conversation. I've left a link in the show notes, how you can uh, reach out to me and set up some time. Let's chat for a few minutes, see if this is something that'll work out for both of us. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Please like, share, and subscribe if you'd like to uh, follow along with my journey and learn more about principles that will help you as they are helping me be the driver in your life rather than a passenger. Thanks for listening to Untoxic Positivity. If you wouldn't mind, we'd sure appreciate you taking a few minutes to like, share, subscribe, and give us a five-star rating and review. If you like what you've heard and want to know if I can help you get out of the passenger seat and into the driver's seat of your life, please click the link in the show notes to schedule a free consultation. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.